Howls of outrage have been echoing across the country since the federal government introduced its new travel restrictions for Canadians. Do they have a point? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. You know, since March 2020, the federal government has had directives for Canadians to avoid non-essential travel out of the country. But it appears there are Canadians who feel they are above others and ignored the restrictions to go south. Now, there are new rules in place starting today. Those who did travel now face new stringent restrictions that could cost them time and money. Canada, with the support of the airlines, has canceled all flights to sunny destinations. More than 375,000 snowbirds make their way to the U.S., South, and Mexico each year. Now, the shutdown is expected to cost the Mexican tourist industry $780 million just this year. Now, the two new variants of COVID-19 have the federal government tightening up the border to avoid a spread of the more contagious and lethal strain. If you recall, Canadians were supposed to stay home at Christmas and avoid spreading the virus, and Environics found that more than 1.2 million Canadians ignored those restrictions, traveled anyway, and that led to a surge in cases, which then led to more lockdowns. Our unpublished.vote question asks, do you sympathize with Canadian vacation travelers who ignored government directives and now face new airline restrictions? Over 65% of you, our reviewers and listeners said yes, they have sympathy for these people. 33, just over 33% said no, and just over 1% unsure. Now we're talking about vacationing and non-essential travel, not those that need to travel for compassionate or medical grounds. However, you're watching and listening to our show, whether it's through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, or on our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, and then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss the restrictions today, Gabor Lukacs is the founder of Air Passenger Rights. Kelly Lee is the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance at the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. And Carl Moore is Associate Professor at the Desotel Faculty of Management at McGill University. And I want to thank all three of you for joining us today. Let's go around the horn first, talking about our unpublished vote. And this is just the people who obviously watch and listen to our podcast. 65%, one-third, almost one-third, feel sympathy for those who ignored restrictions and went south. Gabby, are, are you a little surprised or do you find that's just about right? I'm quite surprised about that. I would suggest that this may be a result of what we call in statistics sample bias. Uh, it may reflect on who was casting their vote and not on what the Canadian public may actually think. Generally... What I'm noticing in our Facebook group, and we have uh, close to 40,000 members, is that people have very little sympathy for snowbirds. People take the position that in such difficult times, if everybody is giving up their travel, if people are even giving up the ability to visit their loved ones, relatives abroad, then traveling for just vacation purposes is not a reasonable act which may result in significant risks to Canadians, to Canadian economy, to Canadian healthcare. Uh, Carl, what do you think? Are you surprised two thirds feel sympathy for those who went south? No, I think it's, uh, it makes sense. It's called winter. They may not have that in Halifax, but evidently at Sun Fraser um, in BC and here in Montreal, we have winter a lot. And so it's something we're just tired of it. We've been locked down for a year. Now it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. 
and Kelly Lee can tell us about that as someone who's a public health expert. I agree with Gabor, it's a dumb idea. We shouldn't do this, but I can understand why we're sympathetic. Kelly, are, are you sympathetic? Do you see why two thirds almost feel some sympathy for those who went south? Yeah, I, I, you know, I understand why people feel they need to travel. It is a long year we've gone through and people desperately need a, need a break from all of this. Um, but our statistics show actually that a lot of people, in fact, 80% of people support stronger travel related measures to um, prevent people from traveling unnecessarily. So the, that goes against, I guess, the poll that you've um, quoted. But, you know, I, don't, I know that a lot of people are feeling um, uh, frustrated at people who are still traveling unnecessarily. And I actually don't um, blame the people so much as I blame poor policy. There's a lot of loopholes out mm. there. There's a lot of lack of clarity. And I think that's where really the responsibility lies. All right. Uh, Gabor, from your perspective, were the restrictions too onerous uh, for the public in the first place? I don't believe so. The restrictions are just right. Actually, some of those measures should have been put in place substantially earlier. Um, of course, it's hindsight 2020 is always easy and sharp. But uh, having, if we had imposed some of those restrictions earlier, already in 2020, possibly, or as early as March 2020, with perhaps some grace period for people to get back home, we would have been in a way better position. Here in Nova Scotia, winter is actually also quite bad. Just a week ago, we had a major snowstorm that even shut down the city for 24 hours. Classes were canceled. We got um, 20, 30, 40 centimeters, depending where you measure it, in one night. Uh, at the same time, because people here are acting very responsibly and very much like responsible citizens, Nova Scotia has the lowest number of active cases and has had that for a very long time. Last time I checked, it was nine active cases. And that is the reason that Nova, the reason for it is that Nova Scotians were willing to make sacrifices, were willing to listen to authorities, were willing to listen to the voice of reason, to stay at home, to follow the rules, to close businesses when needed, to keep uh, physical social distancing. Uh, Kelly, I, I was looking at your study and it, it, uh, it finds the numbers of infected linked to airline travel is, at least what your study says, is underreported. Uh, is it underreported and how so? Yes, so what we're measuring is really just a subset of some of the travelers that are moving about. The 2% I hear, you know, and various mm. other numbers thrown out is to support lack of, of action. And really what we're looking at is, is air travelers mainly coming in, um, and these are non-essential travelers, Canadians um, supposedly. And if they develop symptoms, then they're asked to go for a test. And if they report their travel, history then that goes on the records as travel related so there's a lot of ifs along the way sometimes you know people of course are asymptomatic so they don't go for tests but they're still infected they may not report their travel history um, and and they may not even go for a test so you know it, it there's a lot of things that fall by the wayside but we also don't count people who are potentially exposed to those travelers as they, as they make their way from point A to point B. So they might take a taxi, hang around at the airports, get screened through security and so on. And the flight crews uh, who are serving them, all of this are of course travel related, but they are not counted in, in the data. And of course we don't count the, the land crossings um, with any systematic right. uh, method. So we're leaving a lot 
um, uncounted. And that's really worrying because then we're not getting a good sense of the full risk that we're facing in terms of people traveling. You know, uh, we, we've got these new restrictions that kick in today and the federal government tells us primarily it's because of the two variants, the obviously the UK variant and the South African var variant. And, and Kelly, I wonder, the only way those variants are getting into Canada is through international travel, right? That's right. So yeah. travel and the coronavirus is uh, inseparable. It originally came to the country through travelers. The new variants didn't walk across the border or fly themselves. They were, you know, brought in by travelers. And we we know this from testing from the Alberta pilot study, for example. Uh, but most of the cases are travel related. Um, there are now, of course, community uh, cases are transmitted within the community. We don't know where they came from. That's the most worrying bit. But for sure, you know, we didn't have these uh, before December, and now we have them in all ten provinces. So clearly, they they were brought in by travelers. Now, Carl, do you, do you feel the federal government maybe jumped the gun a little bit with these new new restrictions that were just brought in? Turn on your mic, there, Carl. <laughs> It's really a, pu a public health issue that Professor Lee can comment in a way that I'm just not mm -hmm. capable of. I look at it from the viewpoint of the aviation industry, the impact mm -hmm. on it, and also look at what are airlines doing down in the US and Europe and so on. So it's a tough story from a viewpoint of the aviation industry, but it's public health people like uh, Professor Lee are ones that we have to listen to and hear what they have to say. All right, well, let's, let's talk about what they are doing in Europe and what they are doing in the US. Now, the US is still a basket case when it comes to COVID. Is that really the the direction you want to look at when it comes to the airline industry? Or perhaps is Europe a better example? Well, the US seems to be, I agree that it's a, a bit of a yeah. basket case. And it's astonishing how many Americans are traveling. Now, partly in the US, and I, I lived there six years, mm -hmm. um, the New Hampshire uh, license plate, live free or die, talks about part of the American psyche, it's about freedom in a way that we don't worry about in the same way in Canada. And that's, they have a strength there, but just sometimes it just gets, Americans do get silly and carried away. And, and sadly, it leads to public health issues on a big way. I think Europe has taken a more uh, mature approach about it. And I like the idea of testing. I like mm -hmm. the idea of, of moving, and, and some countries have done that months ago. And that seems to be a better direction to go than a wide, relatively wide open space like we see at times in the U.S. Yeah, and when, when I look at Europe as well, uh, you know, obviously a very compressed uh, group of countries. So tra air travel is not so dominant. But when you look at Canada, you know, there's basically really only one way you're going to get from Gabby's going to get from Halifax to visit Kelly in Vancouver. And that's flying. You know, something you look at, we lived in Europe for five years when I taught in England and we would take the train from London to Paris and we would take the train to Brussels, things like that, because it was high speed. And I remember I was on the train last year in France and it got up to 300 kilometers an hour. Like it was just, you know, and they made a little announcement because it was incredibly better to go on the train than it was to fly. But in Canada, uh, VIA is slower speed than the trains in Europe or Japan as well. And it's something where you go from uh, Halifax to Vancouver to take the train means you're going to take a couple of weeks off in order to go see Gabby. And that's may well be worth it, but it just flying is so much easier. And Canada is the second largest country in the world. And indeed one of the uh, relatively underpopulated compared to China or the U S 
flying is really important to our economy. And then you have tourism as a huge industry in this country. Um, makes sense not to have tourism right now. Absolutely the right approach, but it's something which is a huge part of our economy. Oh, very much so. Uh, Gabby, when uh, we look at these new restrictions, the federal government say, says it doesn't want them to be punitive, but uh, does it really have any other choice considering these people pretty well ignored directives to start with? I find that those measures are necessary overall. Mm -hmm. The only one thing that I would improve is to create clarity as to how the cost is calculated. That should really be simply a bill with each item. Uh, just like when you go to a dentist, if, if they need a special equipment and maybe a PPE, um, then you get billed for it. But it, that would help to relieve the impression of it's being punitive. People need to understand that if your personal choices end up costing money, to the public purse, you will have to reimburse the public purse for that. Kelly, what do you think? Were they are they too punitive? Well, they're supposed. I think they were designed that way, right? Yeah. I mean, they have to hit people in the wallet to some extent to be a disincentive to those who still feel that they need to travel for non-essential reasons. So, I, I think you know it's interesting watching the federal government. They they issue they can't issue a, a mandatory no no travel, but they can. Uh, sort of issue these advisories and they get stronger and stronger in language as we went along in the year. And then the prime minister, you know, is raising his voice and furrowing his eyebrows. That's not working for still some people. So now it, it comes down to hitting people in the wallet. And unfortunately, you know, it is indiscriminate. It will hit people and probably some of them unfairly. Uh, but, you know, these, this is the nature of these policies. You have to really get the numbers down. The virus isn't distinguishing between essential and non-essential and the fact that you're traveling for whatever purpose. It's just, you know, there. And so it has to be a policy that is trying to get the non-essential travel down to hopefully zero or near zero because the system can't cope with quarantining everyone coming in. There's millions of people traveling still. We have to get the numbers down. Otherwise, we won't be able to test them all quarantine them all, screen them all. So that that's really why the cost is is there. Okay. Now, uh, Carl, um, Quebec Premier Francois Legault is, is calling on the federal government to ban all non-essential international travel. Can it even do that? I don't know. That's a legal question, which I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Okay. I'm not a lot of things. I'm not public health. I'm not law. So <laughs> on. But, uh, but so you I'm know airports. To, well, I, I'm trying to, and airlines, I'm trying to stick to that expertise though it is tempting as a professor to profess, but I, I'm trying not to profess things I don't know too much right. about. No, it's something where I don't know if they can legally, but it, by definition, non-essential is not essential. I mean, like definitionally that's simply true. And if it's non-essential, on the other hand, we all are, I think, yearning to travel. There's a sense of a lot of us want to go somewhere and just get on a plane. I've done it twice since the pandemic started, just flew to Toronto. And it was a pleasure to go somewhere else and get away from, as much as I love Montreal, go somewhere else, even Toronto, which is hard for someone not from Toronto <laughs> to say, yeah. but it, you know, it's great. So there's a pent up demand there. And I think it's gonna be great when that demand is allowed to actually happen, but in a safe way. And that's the whole thing. I think everybody with some common sense would agree with. What do you think, Gabby? Uh, the Quebec premier has been calling it. I, I know Doug Ford here in Ontario has been calling for some more clear direction. What, what do you think? Should there, should have been, that's been brought in already? My understanding is that there is a significant constitutional barrier to it. I'm not a lawyer, but mm. I have been asked about this and did a little bit of reading up on this. 
as a Canadian citizen, you have a right to enter the country. That right can be limited or restrained only in a very truly exceptional situations. And there is a principle of minimal impairment required by our constitution. So in order to impose a complete travel ban, the government would have to show that it is impossible to achieve the same measure with other less draconian measures. So for example, if the current and mandatory quarantine measures are still proven to be unsuccessful and the evidence shows that in spite of this, travelers keep bringing in potentially new mutant viruses and it's still not sufficient, perhaps then the government might have a case even then of a complete ban before next step. There is also a practical problem that uh, how do you decide what is non-essential? That's a very significant mm. legal problem. And even with this mandatory quarantine, you may know that the JCCF, the uh, uh, Justice uh, Center for uh, Center for something mm. in freedom, they, uh, they, they um, have already been raising concerns. They wrote to the government that they believe that already this much is unconstitutional. They have threatened already legal action, which I would really be hope that they will bring it because it would be a welcome addition to Canadian uh, case law to have great clarity what can and cannot the government do in this situation. So I, I would say um, at this point, it would not work. It would create, create too much trouble and quite possibly overall the, the uh, cost, the, the potential problems would outweigh the benefit. Uh, Kelly, I, I wanted to ask you, um... When we looked, you brought up messaging and, and that being part of the problem, because every time you turn around, it's a new message, but sometimes it conflicts with the previous one. Uh, in terms of the messaging, is, is that what you see as the issue for these people going south? And, you know, it's not clear, definitive, a definitive answer as to no travel or don't? A little bit like that, but I would say that the government has approach this in a very piecemeal way. What Gabby said was right about, you know, looking back and seeing what was um, done by other countries in a year ago, we could have acted much more um, definitively. But the received wisdom at the time was that travel restrictions don't work. And we based that on previous pandemics and public health emergencies. So you think about H1N1 and Ebola, Zika, th those didn't require travel related measures. But we're in a really difficult a situation is a different virus. It's acting in very unusual ways and it's posing, um, you know, really unprecedented challenges. And I know that word's been used a lot. So the, the problem there is that you, you have to look at it from a comprehensive point of view. You have to look at all the points of entry into the country. And I know that we have a big country and we have, you know, mm. arrivals by air, land and sea. It's logistically uh, a nightmare for the government. But just put in, you know, introducing air travel restrictions, some testing um, three days before or whatever, uh, saying to people, we advise you not to travel unnecessarily is really not enough because people will say, oh, well, they just, it's an advice, but not a, not a requirement. So it's okay, I can still go. Um, and then, you know, keep introducing these little measures like a drip feed. Um, what you need is, you know, really a coherent, joined up approach that is very much like what's happened in some provinces, like the Atlantic provinces have shown us it can work. You can, you know, screen people, you can quarantine them. People have to register ahead of time to go to these places. That's a disincentive. People then decide, okay, I think it's better if I stay home. Um, for the rest who have to travel, we know that when they come into your jurisdiction, they are quarantined and then they 
could be released into the public sort of thing, like a catch and release system. You know, a lot of countries have done this from, we hear a lot about Australia and New Zealand, but also places like Thailand and um, Vietnam, you know, places that don't have as much resources as we do and have land, air and sea travel. So all of this is really saying that the government has really taken a kind of half-hearted, partial approach. And this is confusing to people because, you know, of course, always people are going to find some way around it or, or, or whatever. And if there are no loopholes, then, you know, that then they don't have an option. So this is what I would hope the government would look at a more, yeah, a, a really, a, a really comprehensive approach. Really, And something very clear, definitive, yeah, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You, this is what the rules are. Uh, now, Carl, uh, airports. Now, we only have four that are dealing with international flights here in Canada right now. Uh, but I'm wondering, what, what's the impact on airports across the country right now, and how are they going to get out of this? Well, it's a tremendous impact because they just business is way down. You know, I've been I've flown a couple of times, gone out to the airport <clears throat> many times just to see what was going on. And it's just incredibly down, which causes them huge financial hardship. Um, and a lot of them used to be owned by the government are now no longer government owned, but are not privately owned, but are in between those two. And so they are just facing terrible problems financially. And so they're going to have to get government support as well. Eventually, be, uh, I would be astonished if they don't um, Mm-hmm. need that and get that support just because like the airlines they're in deep trouble oh that they are that they well okay let's quickly talk about you know at some point the federal government has said it's going to have to help out the industry uh i guess what kind of a hole is it in right now and what kind of help from, from do you think it's going to need to get it back on on you know an even ground what's the worst shape it's ever been mm-hmm. you know when you go look at sars or 9-11 this really is in a different zone altogether and they've got, when you look at the airline industry in the US, EU, parts of the Middle East, parts of Asia, the industry's got a, a lot of support. In Canada, we, it's got some, but relatively little. Uh, partly that's because of the, you know, the Air Canada and WestJet are relatively good shape, but are burning through cash. Mm-hmm. So something where um, they had to cancel a lot of flights simply because there weren't enough people on the planes to justify it. So when you look at it, the new CEO, which is starting today, he's been the CFO for the last 10 years. So he brings that perspective of, if you don't have enough people on the planes and losing money, stop doing that. Mm -hmm. So they've had to do that. They've laid off over 20,000 people at Air Canada, even more people in terms of the relative to the the total percentage. Uh, Porter has not flown since last March. So that it's been really a huge impact and the government needs to step up and provide support as what we would see as our countries similar to ourselves have provided the support. Now, one of the things that I think it's important is the people who've got vouchers rather than getting money should be compensated. And that's one of the key agenda items for the government. That's another key agenda items is to get flights back to the Maritimes. Now, partly it's just a lack of demand, but some kind of agreement that the flights will get there so that the Maritimes and remote, more uh, northern Canada things that, that will be served. So those are a couple key things the government's looking for, and I think they're right to ask for those things. I'm surprised it's taken so long. I'm not sure why. And I think to some degree, they canceled some of the flights partly to put pressure from mayors and premiers on Ottawa to do a deal. 
But from what Kaylin Rebinesco, the CEO of Air Canada said last week um, at their annual meeting is that he's feeling more positive and optimistic. He steps down today, but he's been involved in that process. And he is a longtime lawyer. He was the managing partner, Steichman Elliott for years. He's a very good negotiator. So he has a sense of these things. And I think from what he said and other people that there is progress being made, but no done deal yet. Uh, Gabby, I, I think when I look at the people that have, have gone south, the snowbirds and that kind of a thing, it all boils down to essential. What is essential travel? And okay, from your perspective, what do you consider essential travel in a pandemic? In a pandemic, going for a um, medical treatment not available in Canada, and I'm talking about non-elective medical treatment primarily, um, for medical treatment possibly, which may be available, but you may have to wait two years while, again, it's a non-elective type of nature medical treatment, um, then that, that's, those are the obvious things. There can be additional issues, which I would, would call as humanitarian compassionate travel, where um, visiting a dying relative, mm. being, being there for the birth of your child or, or uh, as a father. Mm -hmm. um, I can think of situations of that nature. The overall problem with those is that who is going to make those decisions? What kind of appeal will there be? What kind of recourse will you be will you have if those procedures go go astray? Or will it just depend on having the right lawyer who can get you a permit to travel? It starts raising some very significant concerns of of fair treatment, due process, equality before and under the law. Uh, so that's that's the reason that uh, I I'm more inclined to support measures that are themselves somewhat creating some barriers, but in a, in a proportionate way, in a way that you simply tell people, at the very least, you pay what this costs us. Right. Okay. Now, uh, Kelly, uh, interprovincial travel, how much is, is, is this becoming a, a, an issue? Uh, you know, here in Ottawa, we're on the border with Quebec. And, you know, at some point during the pandemic, they had obviously had officers on the bridge keeping Ontario from Ontarians from going over. But in terms of interprovincial travel, there, there are directives to say, you're not supposed to go, but it's still happening, is it not? It's it's still happening, and in a large large scale, it's dropped down, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, we, but we we don't count. We don't have data on how much people travel into provincially. We've looked at this. It's very hard to get the data. We mainly have international data, and even that is is pretty, um, you know, not not great in detail. But what we do know is that. Uh, Every week, the government publishes the number of domestic flights that have had uh, COVID positive pa passengers on them, mm -hmm. uh, international and domestic. And, and we've seen since January 29th, when uh, we've had these new international measures announced, there's been 60 flights that have had uh, COVID positive passengers. So then they issue warnings, you know, if you've been on that flight, if you're sitting in these certain rows, you, you may want to go get tested and, and isolate or quarantine. Um, so there, it's still happening, and and uh, you know, just there is no really um, joined up way that provinces are all working together. So Atlantic provinces have done this for a long time. Northwest Territories require quarantine. Manitoba's now uh, has some some measures in place, and um, I think Quebec and Ontario are seriously thinking about it, putting in some testing ahead of the federal government and so on. But you know, we need we need a national 
approach to this because it's no use one province saying, mm. please don't come. And the other saying, well, please come, but only come at this time. You know, it, it's very confusing to people. Uh, we, we, we like to, you know, have a national strategy. We don't have a national public health act. We, we have a national health act. We don't have a really a capacity to have the federal government act in a very strong way. And I think that's the, the issue is our political structure is such that we're very much, um, you know, a decentralized system. And that's great. You know, we had to be that way to create this country and it's a great country, but uh, in the situation where there's a national emergency, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of like 13 or whatever jurisdictions trying to do everything uh, themselves. And that, and that really doesn't work very well. Yeah. And none of them get along. So that makes it even worse. But that's politics for you. Yeah, you know what? I want to thank uh, all three of you for joining us uh, on Unpublished TV. Once again, wrapping up. Uh, joining us on our panel, Gabor Lukacs is the founder of Air Passenger Rights. Kelly Lee is the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance at the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. And Carl Moore is Associate Professor at the Desotel Faculty of Management at McGill University in Montreal. Coming up next week on Unpublished TV, should Canada boycott the 2022 Beijing Olympics because of China's human rights abuses, not to mention the incarceration of the two Michaels? Should be a lively discussion. Hope you can join us. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand. <laughs>